The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. What are the most successful change leaders of today doing that makes them stand out? Welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership. Our program is produced by the Institute for Transformational Leadership at Georgetown University. We'll explore the inner game of transformational leadership, sharing insights from renowned leaders and faculty from our world-class leadership and coaching programs. Now, from Georgetown University, here is this week's host. Good morning and welcome to the show. I'm Randy Chittam. I'm guest hosting this week and the following two weeks. Uh, I am the co-director of the Transformational Leadership Program in ITL and also teach uh, in the coaching program. I noticed again that the show intro uses the word inner game when we talk about uh, leadership and transformation. And while I most certainly obviously agree with uh, that focus, I think we are often at risk of underestimating the extent of the interdependence between the inner game and the system or the context in which it operates. So to that end, today and the next two shows are about organizational culture. And I have to tell you, when I first started thinking about culture, the first name that occurred to me was Jerry McDonough, who, by the magic of uh, technology, just happens to be on the phone today. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Good morning, Randy. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're super excited to have you, and I think uh, others will know why in just a few minutes. But I want to tell the listeners just a little bit about how I know you and what made me want to call you, and then I'll let let you do a little more of a full introduction, if you'd be willing. Um, This goes back, Jerry and I have known each other, I think, for four or five years now, and it goes back to when I was working in Florida and we wanted to do a culture assessment, and I searched far and wide for the best way to do that and kept ending up here in Charlotte, where Jerry also happens to live and where his company operates. And I was uh, most excited about them. I used to have, Jerry, I don't think I've ever told you this, I had this sort of image of you and your team as sort of mad scientists that you had like test tubes full of culture or something because you seemed to know an awful lot about it. And it was so much different than how I had previously thought about it. So we wanted to hire Jerry to come uh, and his team there at Lead First to come work with us in Florida. And then we decided we were going to sell off part of the company, and that made it a bad time to start doing culture assessments. But that's how I uh, first met Jerry. Um, and so Jerry is the CEO of Lead First. This is what he'll tell you a little bit more about. Uh, a firm, again, here in Charlotte, specializing in uh, culture and leadership development. And I very often use his thinking and their model when I'm talking with leaders about culture. So many of our leaders start the conversation with, I need to do something about our culture. And I find that they very often just lack really much in the way of distinctions around that. So Jerry's work has been a great help to me. And I'm excited to bring some of his thinking to all of those uh, to you out there as well. Jerry, would you uh, be willing just to do a little better introduction than that? Yeah, I'd be glad to, Randy. Thank you. So, yeah, Jerry McDonough, Lead First is uh, the name of the firm, uh, technically Lead First Learning Systems. Uh, we've been at this for about a little over 30 years, so 1982 where we founded and uh, 
really, uh, when I say at it, it's really three related areas. As Randy mentioned, culture is uh, probably the biggest kind of most strategic, strategically relevant issue that we deal with routinely in shaping cultures and uh, with some frequency integrating merged uh, cultures. Um, but we also get pretty heavily involved in uh, team development at the executive level uh, and other senior and strategic uh, team levels, and uh, also with uh, leader development. We've worked with uh, some 655 cultures, organizational unit cultures over the years. We've uh, uh, helped develop some 680 teams uh, and worked with about 34,000-plus leaders, uh, kind of moving leaders from the domain of management to, you know, a, a broader domain of kind of leadership. So uh, that's uh, that's what we do. We're not a giant firm. There's 19 of us currently. Uh, but I think importantly, um, uh, and particularly since Randy referenced this, uh, a third of my team are statisticians and one econometrician. So we uh, we do take a pretty assessment-focused, uh, um, uh, take that perspective on uh, each of the three areas in which we work, leadership, team, and culture. So enough about Lead First and myself. Randy, I'll turn it back to you. Yeah, thank you for that. So I, uh, I jokingly don't tell them I called them mad scientists, but I think you know people who know me know that I am so disappointed often at what passes as research in our field. And so it's nice to, to know people and be familiar with folks who are doing it well, I think. So, Jerry, let's just jump right into it. Um, I think culture is one of those things that is so often misunderstood by really all of us and certainly the leaders who are trying to change it. But if, do you guys have there just sort of a, what I would call a walking around definition of culture, just something real basic to start us out? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. You know, we have when we write and, and speak, we often use, uh, you know, more scientific, if you will, definitions of culture. But I think our favorite kind of working definition, it's a bit pedestrian, but it's very useful, um, is essentially what behaviors does it take to survive, thrive, and fit in around here? Hmm. And uh, when you think about that, it's a behavioral definition of culture. And uh, it, it, it's taken from the employee or associate's point of view. And all of us in organizational life, consciously or subconsciously, are thinking about that when we join a team, sports team, organizational team, whatever, a department, a division, an organization. We're always thinking, kind of what behaviors does it take to fit in and, and be positively recognized around here? So. Uh, I'm glad you asked because that's that's a good working definition for us, and we jump off of that definition then, and when we measure culture, we kind of take that perspective and are keenly interested in, uh, within organizations, kind of what, uh, what behaviors tend to be promoted. Some of those can be good. Some of those may, may not be uh, as productive. But at first glance, we're really just looking at what behaviors are promoted within an organizational culture. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I could probably get by just with that definition if I had to. But I happen to know you've taken it a fair amount further than that. And I'll say quickly, the thing that, again, I was so uh, – the biggest learning for me was in, in getting the sense that not all cultures are created equal. Like I, I think I used to have this sense that whatever this meant, we didn't really understand it, but we would say a strong culture is what matters. And it almost mattered not what that culture was actually about. Your uh, work over the past 30 years tells us a little bit of a different story, actually a lot of a different story. And so I know this will take a few minutes, but I'm curious if you could walk us through. I know you've got your 
sort of eight characteristics of culture that kind of live in tension with one another. Uh, I'd love for our listeners to have a better sense of what that um, what that's about. Yeah, I'd be glad to. So, uh, what Randy references the eight characteristics really those are the defining characteristics of any culture. Um, we uh, we're uh, in our work industry agnostic. We do work with everything from professional sports teams to you know huge corporations and everything in between profit and nonprofit and and so over the years again we've been working at this for 30 years so we've kind of refined this uh, this model and it's uh, uh it's got eight characteristics in it four polarities if you will so let me just give you an example and i think uh, it'll make it easier for the listeners to follow along so um you know, one of the polarities would be how internally focused is this organization versus externally focused. An internal focus might be really based on business systems and process controls and efficiencies, and at its root, really nothing wrong with that, but to the extent that that internal preoccupation um, precludes you from being focused on uh, external things, the world of the customer, client-focused, value creation, what's our place, each em- employee's place in the value chain? That would characterize more of the external view. So how internally focused versus externally focused are we as a culture? And, and initially, we're not so concerned about why people believe that. We just want to see what their, their uh, behaviors are relative to those two polarities. So that's one. And it's hard to be both simultaneously. This is what we refer to as a competing values model. So it's essentially, you know, you tilt one direction or the other, internal or external. The others, and I won't belabor as uh, uh, each of these as, as long as I have on the first one, but how passive are we versus proactive? Hard to be both simultaneously. Passivity really uh, embraces things like order-taking. There's a fair amount of hierarchy in passive organizational cultures often fear-based, whereas proactive is initiating action, being accountable and taking ownership, and anticipating even needs of our customers, whether they be internal or external. So how passive versus proactive would be the next uh, polarity. The third is how combative are we versus collaborative, and each of those have have its own definitions. And then uh, finally, how stable versus agile are we? So internal, external, Passive, proactive, combative, collaborative, stable, agile. Um, and then we, uh, as I conclude this one uh, part, I think uh, what we typically do then is just categorize uh, what we call a dynamic culture versus a static culture. And a dynamic culture would embrace those four characteristics uh, of external, proactive, collaborative, and agile. And a static culture would be characterized by being more internally focused, passive, combative, and stable. So dynamic versus uh, static. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, thank you very much for that, Jerry. And I wonder if you'd just take it a step further. Uh, I didn't mention earlier, it's probably one of my favorite book titles of all times, that there's a book that came out of this that's probably a few years ago now called Firms of Endearment, which is just a fun, fun title. Um, but part of what that book is about is that companies who operate out of that dynamic model tend to do better than companies who don't. I wonder if you'd just say a little more about the value of uh, being on that side of that circle, if you will. Yeah, I'd be glad to. So, yeah, Firms of Endearment, uh, my, my colleagues, uh, David Wolf and Raj Sodian, uh, uh, co-authored that book. And 
essentially um, what it suggests is a broad stakeholder model to doing business uh, tends to outperform a more narrow focus. So uh, they define the acronym SPICE, which stands for the five key stakeholder groups that, that defines and characterizes a broad stakeholder model. So the S of SPICE means communities or the, the, the society or communities we serve. P is outside partners or suppliers. I is the investment community. C is customer or client. And E is employee culture. And uh, they conclude in, in Chapter 9 of the book that it's really the E of SPICE, the employee culture that was so critical to building and maintaining relationships across each of the other stakeholder relationships. So uh, we screened thousands of companies, and essentially those that were dubbed firms of endearment are outperforming uh, the so-called good-to-great companies by three and four hundred percent, and outperforming the S and P one thousand by uh, uh, I'm sorry, S and P five hundred by about a thousand percent. So the performance is there, and and the the cultures of those companies, these great performing firms of endearment, tilt toward what I referred to earlier as dynamic, meaning external, proactive, collaborative, and agile. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty clear that it matters. Yeah. Is what I heard yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. So thank you for continuing to get into some of these details with us. I think, for me at least, they've been useful in really understanding it. Uh, so you earlier said that you all were fairly agnostic about sort of type of organization and industry and all that. I wonder, even given that, uh, do you see any differences across different types of organizations? Uh, thinking particularly profit and nonprofit, or government and regulated versus not regulated. Anything in there that might just be interesting to help us? get a little deeper understanding of of the model? Yes, Randy. So, um, interestingly, a dynamic culture tends to outperform across um, all manner of organizations, uh, for-profit, non-profit, sports franchises, small companies, private equity-owned companies, and, and publicly traded companies, interestingly. Now, different, quote, flavors, unquote, if you will, perform differently in different industries. But there are certain industries. Think about, for example, a highly regulated industry. Um, Banking would be one. They're they're essentially risk managers, right? And Mm -hmm. so a greater acceptance of stability. Remember, one of the polarities I I talked about, how stable versus agile we are. And kind of the knee-jerk reaction is we want to be highly agile, right? And that that is true in, in many cases. Uh, in some cases, though, where you have highly regulated industries, um, a reasonable foundation of stability is critically important. So when we look at cultural results, and particularly on that polarity of stability and agility, we would expect to see in highly regulated industries uh, a measure of stability there, and that's good. Uh, and then even in within uh, organizational subunits where you're looking at, for example, you know, accounting functions within large corporations, you don't really want a tremendous amount of agility there. You know, you, you, you'll accept more stability uh, and playing by the rules and, and coloring within the line, so to speak. That's, uh, that's pretty important for certain subunits. So there is a, uh, a, a fair uh, differential across in- industries, but interestingly, uh, the dynamic culture tends to outperform at the individual level, at the team level, and at the enterprise level, 
better and at higher levels than does uh, static uh, organizational cultures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. And uh, so the other the other way to think about this across an organization, and you started to go down this path, but I'll just explicitly ask you to say another little bit about it. Um, I think you all work with some multinational or global firms. I wonder how this model holds across that kind of cultural divide. Yeah. Yeah, and again, again there, there are meaningful differences, and I, that's always the more interesting work that we do. Uh, we don't market our services internationally, but we're often taken there by U.S.-based companies who happen to have a presence in, uh, you know, uh, elsewhere in the world. And so we're, we're always interested in doing that work, and there are real differences there. But it, there again, the dynamic culture tends to play out uh, better and perform better than does the static culture. You know, there are certain universal things when it comes to, um, you know, individual and, and team performance and, and cultural performance. And really, everyone likes to uh, be part of a team, you know, and they prefer if it's part of a winning team. Uh, and and they they prefer too that they make a a meaningful and recognized contribution to a winning team, and so those things being part of a team, being part of a winning team, being part making a contribution to a winning team, all of which are embraced in kind of the questions we ask to define a culture here or abroad. Uh, there's some commonality there. So yes. You know, when you go into an organization, you can't expect to overlay the U.S.-based headquarters culture on the world. That does not work. But uh, generally speaking, dynamic cultures still do play out well. Uh, everywhere we've, we've done work, the Pacific Rim, you know, South America, Europe, Africa, um, Canada, et cetera, it's, uh, we, we've seen some similarities there. There are nuances you need to, to uh, kind of control and plan for those. Uh, but the, from a broad perspective, dynamic cultures tend to win anywhere in the world. Mm. That's fascinating, actually. Um, I see we're, we're probably getting fairly close to the break, so I'll ask this question, and maybe we could start, and if we don't finish it, we can come back to it. The, um, you, used the, uh, you used the fear word earlier when you were talking about uh, the, the, the values model between passive and proactive, and I'm partly just curious about, since it's a behavioral model, uh, how you see that show up? Does fear play a role in any of the other uh, characteristics? Um, yeah, so um, so it partly leads into this question, like if I didn't have this nice assessment uh, and I were just walking around, which is what more of us are often doing, right, coaches and leadership development people, like what might we be looking for that would point us towards a dynamic culture? But then I'm particularly, and this is sort of the opposite of that, interested in this question of fear. So, um, I don't know if there's a start to that question. Yeah. So, yeah, some of that is embraced in what we call the passive side. A fear-based organization tends to be very passive, which is counterproductive to innovation and kind of proactive change within the organization. So fear can really be lethal. You know, we've, we've known that for 30 years. Edward Stemming, I can see him wagging a, a crooked finger at us 30 years ago saying, drive fear out of the system, right? And he was right. And uh, so we've uh, we've embraced that in the measurement system now, and and uh, you know things like avoiding confrontation or clearing all decisions with superiors or always following willingly and waiting for others to take action. All of those are symptomatic of a fear-based culture. And uh, yes, fear is if I had to kind of 
um, rename the static culture. I would I would rename it as a fear based culture. It's really mm-hmm. it's really lethal to performance. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, uh, I, we could talk about that. I think for an hour or so. Uh, but we won't. Um, you're listening to Inside Transformational Leadership. When we come back from the break, we're going to move our conversation with Jerry McDonough a little bit towards the question of what do you do about culture change and how do you actually manage to change it. So we'll see you after the break. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, research, and education about the nature and requirements of leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop and sustain worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches dedicated to awakening, engaging, and supporting the leadership required in the world today to create a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer four cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching, the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership, the Certificate in Health Coaching, and the Certificate in Facilitation. We also offer a range of ICF-certified advanced coach education and leadership courses for experienced leadership coaches and leaders at all levels. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email ITLprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host. Welcome back. I'm Randy Chittam, and my guest today is Jerry McDonough. Uh, before the break, uh, we were talking about fear based. Uh, behaviors and cultures and sort of what gets in the way. And uh, due to my poor timing, we didn't get a chance to flesh that out as much as I'd like. So we're going to actually just pick up uh, right where we left off. Jerry, would you just uh, if I unpause the pause button, just keep going on that topic? Yeah, I'd be glad to, Randy. So, yeah, so if, if I had to rename our what we refer to as a static culture, I'd probably call it a fear-based culture. Uh, that'd be a fair synonym for it. And uh, I think on the other side, a dynamic culture I would characterize as a high-trust culture. I think when you look at static cultures there, uh, and it's interesting, Randy, that you brought up, you know, the fear-based uh, issue. And I think really when I would, if I were to ca- categorize those uh, uh, or characterize that further, it'd be, you know, very unresponsive, fearful, inactive, Inactive because it's fearful. There's a lot of decision sclerosis, if you will, within a fear-based organization for fear of failure. Sometimes the kiss of death within certain organizations is to make a mistake, and uh, that's rooted in fear. You know, often, you know, a static culture is also driven by the market as opposed to leading the market. It's entitlement-oriented. But that whole, that whole notion of fear and laying back and not making a mistake can be really 
uh, challenging. Often executives are, are left scratching their heads as to why we're not getting more innovation out of out of our culture, and that's a, a limiting factor on our growth. And it's, what they don't realize is, unconsciously, in many cases, they're setting up policies and systems that kind of drive fear into the system, and people are not willing to step out for fear of making uh, making a mistake. So, mm-hmm. yeah, fear is is lethal to a to a high productive, uh, highly productive culture, and um, steps need to be taken to eradicate uh, as much of it as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you were to, so if you could almost, as you said, rename the static half of the coin fear, how would you think about the dynamic part of it as it relates to fear? Yeah, I think dynamic is high trust. Um, yeah. And and it's also uh, some other kind of positive characteristics of it. It's you know, there's an emphasis on people. It's usually very adaptable. It's innovative. It's high trust, as I mentioned. Usually very customer focused. Uh, the customer is the arbiter of decisions made in many cases by extension into the culture. Mm-hmm. Not fear, not policy, not rules, but really more so, you know, customer needs and trends. Mm-hmm. Uh, also highly accountable, very resilient. Interestingly, look, you're just looking at cultures as they come through the economic downturn and the Great Recession. Uh, we've tracked companies that have had dynamic cultures, and they're back running strong, whereas many of those that had you know, deeply static cultures are either struggling significantly or even out of business. So the resilience factor for these dynamic cultures are, uh, is certainly there and, and can be measured and, and shown. So, oh, wow. yeah, so, so high trust, I would say, and, and also typically better at and, and speedier even at making decisions. That would be another characteristic that we see in these dynamic cultures. Uh, and those are all related, obviously. Mm-hmm. High trust, you don't need to include 15 people on every decision, so you can move faster, and that's, that feeds the whole agility scale as well. Mm-hmm. So kind of uh, synonyms for dynamic cultures would be high trust cultures and, and uh, you know, uh, Decision-optimized cultures, I guess I would call them. Hmm, interesting. I hadn't thought about the fact that with the downturn in the economy and pe- and some companies coming out of that by now and others not, that you'd have insight into that. That's fascinating, actually. Maybe another yeah. another show someday. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I remember um, being. I happened to be on site uh, in a, in an organization on the day that the senior leader was asked to leave. And uh, he was fairly caustic. And I remember this weird sort of lightness in the building. And I asked someone what was going on, and they said the fear just left the building. Ah, right. Wow. (laughs) Let's hope that that's never said about anyone we know and care about. Indeed. Uh, Yeah, so we were headed. uh, So thank you for that little detour. It's a little bit of a detour in terms of how we thought about this. I appreciate your kind of rolling with that. We were, we were moving towards this question of, so you can assess it. That's clear. We know that they're not all created equal. There's a desire to, to sort of tilt uh, in one direction towards the dynamic. So uh, I, I, I know you have a process, and I don't know if you want to explain the whole process, but at least sort of what are the, the, the components involved in, in changing a culture once it becomes clear that that's something that needs to be done or should be done or wishes to be done? Yeah, so, you know, I think I can answer that on a few different levels. I think um, the most simplistic, uh, that's not to indicate it's unimportant, it's, it's very mm-hmm. important, is, is first to be able to 
define the culture with great precision. I, I think I've mentioned to you once before, Randy, that, you know, if we have a chief marketing officer and we ask him or her to define what market share means to them, they'll have a very crisp definition of what market share means, and they'll probably be able to quantify it this year over last year to maybe the second decimal point, right? So very mm-hmm. great deal of clarity on what it is. Is it just U.S. market share? Is it worldwide? Is it, And then what is, what is it uh, numerically or quantitatively uh, this year versus this time last year? You know, if we're going to take something like culture, this amorphous thing, and really start to treat it like an intangible asset of huge value, which, by the way, we believe it is and, and have uh, our research kind of bears that out, you need to first define it with great precision. All too often when I have a first conversation with even executive teams uh, and have independent conversations with them, um, and I ask them about culture, often there's a long pause and they fill the silence with something about mission, vision, I don't know, values, philosophy, business philosophy, all of which influences culture, but it's not culture. And, and so what I came to realize pretty quickly was they, the executive team, or any team, not just to, to uh, have them bear the brunt of it, but they're not equipped to have a good conversation about culture until you kind of define what we mean. And I don't really care if you use our definition or others that may be out there, but definitely have a lexicon for describing and discussing culture so that you're all talking the same language. That's critically important. And then, as I mentioned, really being able to measure it period over period, much like you would anything else of value. If you're serious about changing it, then you, can, you should quantify it. And you should know, for example, if your culture is stronger this time than it was this time last year, much like you would understand that your balance sheet is stronger this year versus this time last year. Mm-hmm. So really elevating it that uh, in those two directions on, on definitions and on uh, being able to measure it, critically important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that the, actually your, your entire answer was about understanding it better. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, which makes total sense. In, in, uh, in ITL lingo, we would call that getting greater distinction about yeah. something that we don't often understand. I hear leaders really conflate uh, culture with community, and I very often hear them basically think of it as having fun. You know, strong yeah. culture means we're having a good time. Um, <clears throat> so I, I have to think that you could probably point to lots of success stories, and I know there's a little bit of uh, walking a fine line here between revealing company names and all that sort of thing. But I wonder either a specific company or more generic lessons that you could share with us about uh, things that have actually worked in terms of moving a culture from, so as you said, we measure it period over period, we measured it, we agree on the direction we'd like to move, and a year later or some period later, we've actually moved to there. Like how a little, like I'd be interested in almost a story if you have one, but if not a story, uh, some ideas about how you've seen that actually, not seen it work, but helped people make it work. Yeah, you know, I think, I think one other key piece of this is making sure I, I often describe it as the why is the most important how. The why is the most important how. And mm. what I mean by that is we, we really do need to um, be able to speak the language of executives who, you know, they may genuinely care about culture, but they also are stewards of the business if it's a for-profit business and, and, and to other stakeholders if it's not. Mm-hmm. And so clearly linking 
um, to whatever their bottom line is, is critically important. If you don't establish that why, why are we doing this in the first place? And if that why isn't compelling, or if, there, if, if that linkage is ever severed, then it really makes for, you know, an uphill challenge for HR pro- uh, professionals and other practitioners who are trying to help shape the culture in certain directions. So that's critically important. So I think, you know, elevating uh, where you're having conversations with your, your uh, corporate clients as we are and, and actually elevating culture to among the top three, four, five strategic imperatives mm. uh, if you can get that done, that's kind of a catalytic mechanism. If you can just get that done, it'll cause lots of good to happen beyond that. So, you know, the example I'm thinking of is a, about a 3,400-person uh, employee um, uh, healthcare services firm. Uh, they're top of mind only because we had a, uh, a recent remeasure. And some of the characteristics of, of, of that uh, transition over a fairly short period of time, just uh, under a couple of years, you know, taking a baseline measure, elevating culture to, um, you know, uh, one of the top five strategic imperatives, uh, helping the CEO and then more broadly the executive team move beyond what I call commitment to informed commitment. Commitment is really commitment to a goal, to the outcome. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's really important, Randy, but um, but informed commitment goes beyond that, and, and informed commitment gets to, I really understand what we're going to have to address to get there. We may have to relax the top-heavy decision-making process that's extant in the business right now. We may have to free that up. I may actually have to behave differently as a senior executive in order for this to go in the right direction. So that, that gets more toward, uh, toward informed commitment. And that, that's critically important. Mm. And, and so what you see now is you see, you know, some of the outcomes, better attraction of talented employees, uh, an easier time of, of, of hiring against a pretty, in many cases, stringent healthcare profile, um, better retention rates, uh, particularly high performer retention. You, you know, we're advocates of measuring, you know, turnover at all levels, but you know, we're also big advocates of making sure that our retention rates at the high performer category is really strong and getting better. So that would be something else that would char- characterize this in a fairly short period of time. Some of the some of the uh, uh, benefits that they've achieved through the culture work that they've done. So, so let me let me pause there, and if mm-hmm. uh, if there are others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, this this whole thing. This is sort of where the proverbial rubber meets the road, right? So. I wonder, uh, like that's all. That's actually very helpful. And for some reason, my mind kind of wandered off to the question of how often now we see uh, two, perhaps different kind of cultures, trying to integrate in some way, either through acquisition or merger, or just a choice to be together in some way. Like you yeah. see a lot. I think you see a lot of that in the marketplace today. I even saw a nonprofit the other day that was being assumed by another nonprofit, and so I wonder just where that's all headed. But any any thoughts? in particular about how culture mergers happen? Yeah, um, thanks for asking. We, uh, I would say, and this is a growing percentage, I don't know exactly what it is, but I would estimate about 20% of our work is in merger integration relative to culture. Yeah. Uh, and it can be large and small, and it can be kind of mergers of equals or you know, uh, disproportionate. 
but a lot of our work is there. And interestingly, what we tend to do is um, we're not essentially trying to make one side of the acquisitions culture the culture for the company or vice versa. Mm. Um, usually what we're doing is defining a brand new culture to which both entities, both legacy companies aspire to. So it's, it's not us or, or, or them, it's new. And uh, mm. that's often the case. In the case of the one company that I was just describing, uh, I know I didn't name them and won't, but healthcare services company, they had made an acquisition of a fairly small relative to them that they were, you know, 3,200 or roughly a little over 3,200 employees. They acquired a software company, and, and there was all of maybe 50 employees in that mm-hmm. company. And yet they're learning, the, the acquirer is learning more about culture, particularly on how to be nimble and how to move fast and be agile. So the wisdom of, of this company and their executive team is that, listen, we're not going to impose our culture because we want to learn from, from, from the acquired as well. We want to take the best of what's available. So um, so that's a hallmark of a great culture, too, is that, listen, we'll, we'll absorb a new culture and a new culture characteristic that we think it's going to serve us well. Wow. And to, so I think we probably, I could imagine hearing a lot of companies say that, right, that we want to learn from, in all sorts of ways, from the company that we've brought in. Is there anything in particular that you've noticed there that and maybe it's just that they have a really strong culture, as you were talking about. But any, any, any other thoughts about why they're actually able to do that? Like, what makes them, because I feel like that's probably different in some way than between what people say they want to do and what they actually do. Yeah, I, I think there's, um, I, I may not put, be able to put my finger directly on it, but I think there's just this openness to learning. Um, there's, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of fear in trying new things. Um, and they're so riveted on performance that, you know, if they're convinced that the acquired entities, uh, some some characteristic about the acquired entities' culture is going to serve them best toward their bottom line, they'll embrace it. And, um, you know, don't get me wrong, even in this particular culture, not everyone embraced it instantly. There were some structures and things that got in the way. But ultimately, uh, as they carefully considered some of the characteristics of the acquired company, it serves them. Yeah, that sounds like a very interesting company, actually. So um, when we come back, Jerry, from the break, I want to ask you, and uh, so I'm sort of doing a little bit of a teaser here. So lots of cultures, um, you, you read about them, they're held up as examples of great culture and even great organizations, and then something weird happens, and all of a sudden uh, they are perceived in a much different light. I think about Enron a while back and more recently Wells Fargo, and I know that you clearly that you don't work with either one of them specifically, but I want to ask you when we come back from the break uh, if you have any thoughts about how that shift can turn so quickly. So um, this is uh, Inside Transformational Leadership, and we'll be back in a few minutes.
whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, research, and education about the nature and requirements of leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop and sustain worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches dedicated to awakening, engaging, and supporting the leadership required in the world today to create a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer four cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching, the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership, the Certificate in Health Coaching, and the Certificate in Facilitation. We also offer a range of ICF-certified advanced coach education and leadership courses for experienced leadership coaches and leaders at all levels. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email ITLprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. You are listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host. Welcome back. I'm Randy Chittam, and our guest today is Jerry McDonough. Um, Before the break, I teased a little bit that we sometimes, uh, Jerry, I remember teaching an MBA class once probably 15 or 20 years ago, and we actually used a textbook in that class, a leadership textbook, and in between ordering the textbook and getting to class, Enron had happened. And Enron in this book was held out as a great example of outstanding leadership and how everyone should want to be like Enron. Uh, I picked up um, a book about culture recently. And in that, it's a little bit older, but in that book, Wells Fargo was held out as a great example of a culture. And the CEO there was held out in particular as a great CEO of a great culture. And it just, it wanted sort of sadly made me laugh. And then it made me think, are there, and again, I want to be clear to, the, to our listeners, you don't work with either one of them, so we're not actually asking you to sort of diagnose, we're asking you to speculate a little bit just based on what you know about culture. How does that happen? Yeah. Yeah, so obviously it will be speculative, but, you know, on, in, in our mind's eye and the, uh, the way we measure culture, as I described it at the uh, front end of the conversation, Randy, we talked about you know, one dimension of that stability versus agility. And I would say probably if I had to give like a one-word answer, it would be imbalance. That there, there's an imbalance that happens. And that can happen on, you know, uh, at least a couple of different levels. I think one of the, one of the characteristics of the great performing firms of endearment is they, they, they can act short-term, but they also think long-term. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, if, if, market forces or managerial forces or what have you start to prompt in one direction or the other. I mean, both are important. You have to be able to deliver, uh, you know, just ask any CFO, cash flow is king, right? You need to be able to deliver short term, but not to the exclusion of a longer term focus. So I think that's, 
that's one thing. Um, where maybe a, a more myopic focus on the short term may have been driving behaviors that were antithetical to what they, you know, said they wanted to be culturally, could be one, again, speculating. Mm-hmm. And I think the nexus of the other poll then, so one being time, short term and long term, the other being uh, really stakeholder alignment or balance would be another one where mm-hmm. you may give disproportionate focus to one of the SPICE stakeholders. Remember, SPICE, society, P, mm-hmm. partners, outside suppliers, I is investor, C, customer, and E, employee culture. Mm-hmm. You know, the reason executives get paid the big dollars is to balance these things, right, and to align the interests of investors with, you know, who produces the revenue, which is customers. So if there's an imbalance there, that can that can skew things, too. Now, what precipitates that, I, I don't know. I mm-hmm. can speculate, though, that, you know, new leadership could do that, new management or lack of leadership, new management, mm-hmm. you know, a, a turnover at the top could do that. I've seen cultures that were moving in the right direction uh, make make a few uh, expeditious hires at at a senior level, and the culture gets you know is set back you know, eighteen to twenty four months, um, mm. measurably so, and mm. um, so that could be the case as well. So mm-hmm. I, I would say balancing both the short term and the long term, and what in, uh, what impact that has on your culture. And then balancing the stakeholder interests in a way that is uh, aligned with both short-term performance and long-term is critically important. And all of that is, all of that's taken up in the culture itself. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I wish I'd made a tick mark every time you said balance or unbalanced or out of balance. So maybe yeah. the takeaway yeah. from that is balance, right, in lots yeah. of ways matters. Yeah. Um, so one of the things we have, thank you for that, Jerry, by the way, I know it's sort of asking you to venture into territory where we don't really know, but I just find it such a curious question. Uh, One of the things we haven't yet talked about is sort of what creates culture in the first place, like where did it come from? And I wonder, just given all the thinking you guys have done about it, how you would uh, uh, help us think about what causes or creates culture in the first place? Yeah, so, you know, I think in small and then growing companies, I think culture is almost an extension of the founding CEO's personality, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. you know, and at least that's what launches it. But I think then as as a company or an organization goes through its S-curves of growth and it's, uh, you know, traverses its life cycle, different things start to happen. And I, we've done a lot of work on this, understanding that, you know, we know uh, statistically and rigorously that outcomes are driven by culture. That, you know, mm-hmm. There's no need to suspend, to suspend disbelief on that totally. We know that there's a strong connection, either causal or correlation to outcomes. But we were curious beyond that to kind of get to the answer to your question, Randy, is, you know, it's hard to think of anything that doesn't influence culture, right? Think about... Um, you know, if, if you mer- we talked about mergers earlier and, and what a profound impact that has when two, two companies collide and you need to rationalize a new, new culture out of that. That has a profound impact. But even think about, you know, a junior-level manager turns over, and that has a, at least a local impact on the culture as well and mm-hmm. everything in between. So we were really curious about, okay, what really – what are really the, what we call the causal factors of culture? 
And the good news there is uh, the methodology is regression analysis, and they know the testing. But really, looking at what are the what are the levers, what buttons do you push if you want to shape a culture? And really, there are only three. Uh, and the first is uh, leadership and management. Uh, the second is structures, systems, and policies. That's one, structures, systems, and policies. Mm-hmm. And the last is work design and process. So when you think about how cultures come into being, it's a little like what Frank Lloyd Wright once said, I believe paraphrasing, was, you know, we shape our structures and then they shape us. Mm. So there's a bit of a reciprocal effect between leadership and culture. Culture shapes leadership. Remember our definition, what behaviors does it take to survive, thrive, and fit in around here? Mm-hmm. And leadership shape it, shapes culture. Um, you know, an example of that, and I've used this before, I see it often on the structure, systems, and policy side. So that's the second driver, for example. Um, you know, we say, and, and we're investing heavily. I've seen this. The company's investing heavily on leadership development. And they've actually selected good programs and they're executing well on those, but they're not getting the cultural uh, outcomes that they want. And there's still a lot of competition, even among the senior most people going through this leader development program. And you say, okay, why could that be? How is that? And, well, you look at a different system or policy. Let's call it discretionary compensation, uh, which essentially racks and stacks everyone in a win-lose proposition, highly competed, Right. Same people going through the training and development on leadership are caused to compete head-to-head for discretionary compensation or promotions. So you essentially have two systems that are working at, at, at counterpoints to each other, mm-hmm. and there's this cacophony acting on those people. Um, remember, what behaviors does it take to survive, thrive, and fit in around here? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ambiguity around that. The training system says collaborate. The comp and promotional system says compete. Which do you think wins? Typically, it's the comp system that will win out. Mm-hmm. So, so as companies grow, typically they're bolting policies, processes, systems, work design, one on the other over time without a lot of thought or, or without a lot of intent to synchronize how these will play on people's behaviors. And, uh, and, and I think that's where... That's where sometimes things go off the rails, Randy. Hmm. I think we've all probably seen things go off the rails, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, so, partly because this is about this, uh, this show is about leadership in its, in its most general form. Um, what, if you take the first one of those, if we just sort of pivot towards the leadership management sort of causal mm-hmm. factor that you identified, what, what do we know about? Uh, the type of leader or the type of leadership that is most likely to produce the kind of culture that we're aspiring to? Yeah. Yeah, we've uh, we've done a lot of work in that area. I mentioned at the outset of the call we've worked with some 34,000 leaders, most mostly top few bands of management structure, and it's really fascinating when you look at leadership patterns of behavior and impact in, on shaping culture and then culture's ability to shape business outcomes. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think we have seen um, uh, the uh, the process that we use to kind of uh, identify leadership, and and we distinguish very plainly between management and leadership. And we're not saying that either one is more important. Both are really critically important, but there's different uh, different outcomes and different expectations that you 
uh, expect from both sides of that. So what we, uh, when we look at leadership, we're looking at it across the spectrum of, of leadership patterns or styles, and there are, uh, there are a couple that are more dominantly oriented. We call them dominant negative and dominant positive leadership styles. They can be, in the moment, short-term, very effective, but they're not generally good at shaping cultures long-term. The other extreme of the spectrum are more of the passive styles of leadership. We call them passive positive and, and um, uh, passive neutral negative. And these are just characteristics that are passive. They often are well-liked, but they're not very good at driving results. Uh, but they are longer-term and they're very relationship-oriented. We find that the best balance between the dominant and the passive is, and one we call active positive is the most effective leadership style in shaping enduring, strong, and highly productive cultures. So one we call active positive, um, really focused on accomplishment. Um, we They... They balance, and there's that word again, right? They balance mm-hmm. task and people really well, whereas the dominant styles are all task-focused. Uh, the, the active, positive leader is, uh, you know, embraces both task and people. They can look at what's right in front of them and also, you know, take a longer view almost simultaneously. They're always thinking about, you know, here's a decision I need to make in the moment, but what impact will that have? momentarily, but also uh, from an enduring sense as well. So they, they can walk and chew gum at the same time when it comes to leadership, <laughs> short-term and long-term. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they're highly achievement-oriented, and not unlike the dominant styles, they're highly competitive, but there's a big difference. They're competitive with themselves. Their previous mm. best performance is really what drives them, whereas the dominant styles are competing against everyone else, even within their own company. They have to kind of win every discussion the dominant styles do. The active styles are highly, highly uh, competitive, but really just with their own previous best performance. Um, so those are some of the characteristics of, of the active positive leader. And again, it's that leadership style because of its ability to look at short-term results and longer-term culture shaping simultaneously. Uh, building great teams and great systems that will endure. Uh, that, that's really what some of the hallmarks of the active positive leader and the one that uh, creates more often than not when you have a, a critical mass of active positive leaders, you tend to see dynamic cultures follow pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Jerry, uh, this is almost more for me, believe it or not, but I know that you, obviously you guys have tools that measure culture. I know you have a leadership 360. Is this one of the things that people can learn about through the 360, this particular style? Yeah, it is, absolutely. And and uh, it's a little more nuanced than what I described, not to get too yeah. technical, but, yeah, it would be that approach. And interestingly, all of us have a primary and a backup leadership style. The primary active positive, hopefully, for many of us mm-hmm. uh, would be primary. The backup is the one that often gets us into trouble, and that's the one we go to under duress or in a crisis. So mm-hmm. when we're coaching executives and working in, in helping leaders develop, you know, we're as interested in their backup style and how quickly they trigger to that backup style as we are to their primary style. Mm. Oh, very interesting. Okay. Um, so I don't... I'm sorry. Oh, Jerry, I'm sorry. So the... Um, uh, I wonder if you could say just maybe 45 seconds worth. I don't. I feel like we've missed it somehow. Maybe this idea of balance, particularly on the 
on the characteristics right between dynamic and static like we're not talking about all the way to the right uh, i don't think and so uh, could you say just a little bit about that that's the one thing i feel like i left sort of unclear today yeah and that's really where you know the organizational setting its industry its challenges that's where that gets picked up in in our measurement model mm-hmm. yeah there's nothing wrong with you know, an internal focus, right? We're not looking for, you know, complete external focus and, you know, think about stability versus agility. You know, we're not seeking anarchy, right? We want stability. We want certain rules. We just don't want them to impede too much our progress on being able to move on what we see with, with customers in the marketplace that is being agile. So, yeah, finding that right balance point uh, of uh, where you are given the industry you're in you know, again, in a, in a banking environment or, you know, an energy company where it's highly regulated, we would we'd expect to see greater stability, for example, and probably less on the agile side. That'd be all right. But in a software mm-hmm. company, that would be the kiss of death. You know, if you're a software company and you tilt way towards the stability side, meaning you're not agile, that can be pretty lethal to your success. So, yeah, yeah that, that's uh, something to keep in mind is that there's really no uh, ideal balance point. And at the end of the day, it's really the executive team that defines its own preferred culture, the one it needs to execute its strategic plan and win in the marketplace that becomes the goal. Right. Okay. Jerry, I think we need to get to the finish here. Thank you so much for today. I appreciate your pushing our thinking about this intersection of culture and leadership. I know that every time I talk to you, I learn something, and that is true today. Uh, this has been Inside Transformational Leadership. If you want to know more about Jerry McDonough, I'd suggest going to leadfirst.com, and you can read thought papers and other things that might help you better understand what we've talked about today. Jerry, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure, Randy. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us this week on Inside Transformational Leadership. Please tune in for another edition next Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our programs, please visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. We'll talk again next week.